what is your perception of Jesus? Who do you think he is? And uh, everybody's got their own perception of Jesus. Some people prefer the little sweet Jesus in the manger, Jesus. And some people see Jesus more as the party guy and the best friend. And some people, some people have a view of Jesus, I think, more as a like a mythical figure who who kind of levitates above the ground. Not even not even human. The Jesus of stained glass windows, that kind of Jesus. Uh, other people see him as a as a mystical prophet, sage type person. Uh, some people see him more as a as a prophet or as a good teacher of wise truths. All kind of, everyone's got their own perception of who Jesus is. And when you come to Revelation, people have also got their own ideas of who Jesus is in this book. And the common perception, I think, is that in Revelation, when you get to the end of the Bible in this book, Jesus kind of becomes this warrior. That Jesus is this, this crusading guy with a, with a sword and he's a victor and he's this triumphant hero who has come to squash all the bad guys and beat up everyone who doesn't like him and vanquish all God's enemies and just do away with all this stuff. And we have these connotations of Jesus in Revelation being quite aggressive, uh, being quite hostile, and, and this kind of warrior-type uh, image. Uh, one well-known Christian writer and author and speaker uh, put it this way. His view is that in Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. Now, I don't know how you respond to that, how you feel about that description of Jesus. I have to admit to being quite troubled by that for a number of reasons, one of which is Revelation 5, the chapter that we're in today. And this chapter in Revelation gives us the central vision of Jesus in the whole book of Revelation. It's absolutely pivotal. In fact, Revelation 4 and 5 together are really the crux of, of the book. You just can't go on until you have a grasp of what this is. Last week we talked about God, the Father on the throne, the one on the throne, the Holy One, the Glorious One, the Gracious One. And today you have this, this image of Jesus before the throne. And it's the central picture we get of who God the Father is and who Jesus is. Nothing else in this book makes sense without understanding clearly this image because everything else after this flows from this throne room scene. So we need to be clear on who Jesus is uh, in this picture. So we'll read it, and I thought maybe today, uh, as we read the chapter, we could read it partly together. As we come to these parts in Revelation 5, where other voices chime in and there's a worship scene, uh, let's, let's say those bits together as a congregation. They're in, they'll be in bold on the screen. So here we go, Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center before the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, let's say it together. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power, forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Wonderful passage. And, and this is a continuation of uh, what John saw, as we described last week, in this heavenly throne room scene. He's been taken up to heaven. He's standing there before the throne of God, and he encounters the presence of the Holy One, uh, radiant light coming from the throne, this rainbow we talked about reflecting the, the radiance of God and in some ways reflecting, too, the grace of God. And then John notices that as he's contemplating the presence of, of the Holy One, the presence of God, that he sees in God's right hand a scroll. God is holding a scroll and it's written on both sides. Now, it's a, it's a couple of chapters before we really figure out what this scroll is and what's in it. You need to get to the end of about chapter 7 before you see and all these seven seals of the scroll are opened and you figure out what's going on. But I'll just tell you what it is now and then we can unpack it in the coming weeks. The best way to think about this scroll is that it contains God's redemptive plan for the world. Now, there's various ways you could say that. It contains God's plan to establish his kingdom on earth. It contains God's plan to bring his reign into the chaos and the disorder of sin. It contains God's plan to bring shalom, his peace, to the earth, to his creation. It contains God's plan to bring about the new Jerusalem, uh, which becomes a dominant image later in Revelation, to establish the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God on earth. The scroll is God's redemptive plan in the midst of the chaos and the disarray and the depravity of this world to bring his kingdom to bear, to establish his reign and to redeem and to renew and to recreate his good world. That's what's in the scroll. And as John looks at the scroll, there's a huge search that gets undertaken to find someone who's worthy to open it because the problem is it's sealed up. There's seven seals along the scroll. So it's bound tightly and there's a great search. Who's worthy to open the scroll? Who can possibly set in motion this plan of God to redeem? And nobody's found who can do it, which is a huge cosmic problem because it means the scroll remains sealed. Nobody can set in motion God's plan to redeem the world. The world remains then stuck entrenched in sin. And bondage. And then one of the elders, one of these 24 elders, turns to John and says, Don't weep. Because John's been so distraught by this, he started weeping. The elder says, Don't weep. 
Someone has been found who can open the scroll. Someone has been found who can open these seals and set in motion God's redemptive plan. And that person is, of course, Jesus. Now, what is absolutely critical here to to understanding this perception, this image of Jesus, is to see the difference, to understand the difference between what John hears about Jesus and what he sees of Jesus. Because there's a huge difference there. First, what he hears about Jesus from this elder in verse 5. What he hears is that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. That's the image of a warrior. In the Old Testament, this Lion of Judah was a, was a, was a great warrior figure who's going to come out of the tribe of Judah, who will be raised up and will be this conquering hero who's going to vanquish all of God's enemies, who's going to establish Israel as, as a dominant supreme nation again and who is going to ensure there is no resistance to God, no resistance to the people of God, and he will bring about victory, this warrior, the Lion of Judah. And then he also hears that Jesus is of the root of David. Now that's the image of a king. It's the, it's the promise that was made, that God made to David, that from his line, one of his descendants would sit on his throne and would establish his kingdom, would establish his reign over the earth and would reign forever and ever, establishing this, this, this everlasting kingdom on the earth. He would be God's anointed representative king uh, over the whole earth, the supreme kingdom. So what John's hearing is this image of a warrior king who is going to come to rescue, to deliver, this one who has triumphed as the elder says. He's won a great victory. So you can imagine at this point what John's expecting to see. He's expecting to see this image of strength, this image of power, this valiant warrior. And then what does he see? Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center before the throne. John hears of conquest, he hears of triumph, he hears of strength and might and power, and he sees a lamb. He sees this this helpless animal, this powerless animal, this weak and vulnerable and frail animal. And not just a lamb, he sees a slaughtered lamb, a lamb that's been slain. It's an image of suffering. It's an image of slaughter, an image of of, of death. So you can imagine the disconnect that's going on in John's mind here. What he's heard is the warrior king has triumphed. What he sees is the slain lamb. The lion of Judah and the lamb that's been slain. And somehow they're the same person. Somehow they're both Images of Jesus. How do you hold this together? How do you keep these images together and somehow reconcile them? Well, this image of the slain lamb goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. All the way back, in fact, to the night that Israel was rescued from Egypt. The night that Israel left Egypt. God's brought all these plagues upon Pharaoh and upon his household and upon Egypt. And the last of those plagues, God says, I'm going to have my angel pass over the the, the nation of Egypt and strike dead the firstborn child in every household. And he says, but for you Jewish families, for the Israelites, these Hebrew slaves, I want you, each family, to take a lamb. Take a little lamb and, and slaughter it. And, and, and sprinkle some of the blood upon the door frames of your home. 
so that when my angel passes over Egypt, passes through the cities, passes across the nation, he will see the blood on the door frames of your house and he will pass by those homes and he won't strike dead the firstborn child in those homes. And so the Israelites do, each family takes a lamb, they sprinkle the blood, and as the angel of the Lord passes over, he strikes down the firstborn child, right to the home of Pharaoh, right up to the top of the hierarchy, strikes down the firstborn son of Pharaoh. It's great weeping in the middle of the night in Egypt as parents wake to find their children dead. And that's the last straw for Pharaoh. That's the moment at which he says, get out, leave. Nothing else has permanently changed his mind, but he says, "This, just go. And it's in the middle of the night in haste that Israel makes their exit, makes their departure from Egypt. And so God uses this, this weak, this insignificant, frail animal as a symbol of deliverance. There, within this image, there's the idea of, of, of freedom, of rescue, that God has used the lamb to bring about liberation for his people. It's an image of salvation. And this event was so important in the life of Israel that God instituted that every year it was to be remembered in the ceremony in the, in the Feast of Passover. Every year, Jewish families were to take a lamb and slaughter it, and there was a meal that was held in recognition, in memorial of that night and the exodus that followed and what God did in bringing his people out of slavery. And that carried on right through the Old Testament time, right through, it carries on to today. Jewish families still celebrate the Passover. It was celebrated in Jesus' day too. Jesus probably celebrated Passover numerous times with his friends, eating the lamb, drinking the wine, taking the bread. And John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote a gospel about Jesus. He also wrote this biography of Jesus, and he probably wrote his gospel after he wrote Revelation. So he's got all these images in his mind that he's seen in the throne room when he comes to write his gospel of Jesus. And it's interesting that when John gets to describing the crucifixion of Jesus, the day that Jesus died, he does something that no other gospel writer does. Twice in the same chapter, in John 19, John mentions that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation for Passover. That's, that's the day that the lambs were slain. Not on the day of Passover, the day before. This is when the lambs were slain in Jerusalem. Twice John mentions that. And I can't help but think he had this, this experience of being in the heavenly throne room, central in his mind, as he's writing his biography of Jesus. And he wants to make explicit to his readers of his gospel that Jesus has become the Passover lamb. Jesus has become that lamb. God's not using an animal anymore. He's not using this creature. He is using Jesus. He is using his son. Jesus has become the lamb. He's become weakened. He's become powerless. He has become humiliated. He's become mocked and beaten and scourged and flogged and spat upon and humiliated. He's become utterly degraded and debased. He's been totally dehumanized. Jesus has been emptied out. He's been absolutely gutted. He's been slain. He has been lowered to the lowest point. He has become this weak and frail and powerless and helpless slain lamb. And he's done it out of the depth of the self-giving love for us. He's done it out of a tremendous selfless desire to give life to others, to give life to us. He's prepared to be slain, to be weak, to be powerless, in order to breathe life into others and to bring life to us. And in that very act of ultimate powerlessness on the cross, Jesus wins a victory. He does triumph. 
He wins a victory over sin from the cross. Over all the power of sin. He wins a victory over Satan. And he steals away the keys to death and Hades from the strong man and binds Satan and restricts him and throws him down. He, he wins this cosmic victory over all the powers of evil and injustice and darkness, principalities and powers in the heavenly realms and on the earthly realms. And he does it from a cross. He does it through this profound act of self-giving love. In fact, Jesus wins a victory on the cross over every other empire that would ever stand against him, every other system, every ideology, every kingdom that would set itself against his rule and against God's purposes, including the kingdom of Rome. Jesus wins a victory against those kingdoms as well. The irony is that Jesus conquers the kingdom of Rome by being conquered at the hands of Rome. From the cross, from this position of being executed by the Roman Empire, Jesus wins his victory against the empire. He is the warrior, but his sword is a cross. He is the king, but his crown is of thorns. It's not either or. Jesus doesn't oscillate between being the great lion, the great warrior, the great king, and then sometimes being weak and sometimes being humble and sometimes being frail. It is precisely on the cross that we see the power of Jesus demonstrated, that we see the strength and we see the might. It is the power and the strength of self-giving love poured out and spent on behalf of the other in order to give life, in order to redeem, in order to restore. Now you could call this Lamb power. It's a bit of a strange phrase, but it gets to the heart of what we're talking about. It's the exact opposite of Rome power, and that's part of John's point. This is not power at the edge of a sword. This is not power through brutality and might and coercion and force and manipulation and control. This is power through self-giving love. See, what Jesus does is he summons all of his great power. He never loses his power. You look at this picture of the lamb. The lamb has seven horns. Do you notice that? The horns, a horn in the Bible represents strength. It represents power. And Jesus has seven of them. Number of completion, number of perfection. Jesus has perfect and complete power. Never gives up his power. Never loses his power. But the question is, how does he demonstrate his power? What does Jesus do with his power? And the answer is, he uses it to express self-giving love. He uses it to demonstrate lamb power. Jesus doesn't use his power to control, to manipulate, to bully, to oppress, to force. He uses his power to demonstrate self-giving love. He summons all of his strength as the Son of God, all of his might, all of his power, in order to give all of himself away. It's the emptying of the Son of God in which we see his great power. It's the paradox of the heart of Jesus. That's why I would argue the cross is the most natural thing Jesus ever did. It's not an exception to who he was. It's not that Jesus is strong and mighty and powerful, but then he happened to be crucified. It's that on the cross you see the perfect demonstration of who Jesus is, because that's his very nature, self-giving love. It is his self-giving love taken to its most extreme conclusion, the total emptying of the Son of God. It's strength in weakness. It's honor in shame. It's power demonstrated in powerlessness. 
And that's not just something Jesus did once. See, we can kind of handle this image of lamb power. We can kind of handle the image of the slain lamb as long as it's just something Jesus did on the cross. But then surely when he ascended to heaven, he left all that behind. Surely now he's just moved on to greatness and he left behind the lamb. But John is seeing Jesus in heaven. He's not looking at the cross. He's not witnessing Good Friday. He's looking at Jesus in heaven. And he's still seeing him as the slain lamb. Even now in the prayer. See, I don't know when you think of Jesus now, when you think of Jesus in heaven right now, what words, what images come to mind? We think of him, we describe him as, as Lord, uh, Savior, King, Redeemer, the high and lifted up one, exalted. And that's all good. And that's all right. But he's also the slain lamb. Even now, right now, he is the wounded healer. And his power is inseparable from his suffering. They go together. Even now, he carries the wounds. Even now, he is the slain lamb. Right now, he's still the slain lamb. He's the warrior and the king. But he's the warrior king who demonstrates his power through profound Self-giving, self-lowering, self-emptying love. This is who Jesus is. And we can push it a step even further to say this is who God is. Because you cannot, in Revelation 4 and 5, play the Father off against the Son. As if the Father is this image of strength, dominance, and holiness, and the Son is an image of weakness and, and, and frailty. They are one God. So Jesus shows us not just who he is, he shows us who God is. He shows us that God is holy and God is glorious, and yet God's essence and heart and very nature is self-giving love. It's not just something God did, it's something God is from eternity past to eternity future. Self-giving love at the heart of God. It's extraordinary, isn't it? We serve a God who is, who is absolutely other, absolutely in, in his own category, unfathomable. And yet his, his proclivity is to give all of himself away, to empty himself completely in order to give us life and draw us near. What kind of God is this? What an incredible savior. This is the Jesus that we worship. And when we worship him, as we do this morning, we need to worship him not just as king, warrior, lord. He is all of those things, but also the slain lamb. We need to think of Jesus as the slain lamb, the lamb slaughtered yet standing in the presence of God. This is how he's worshipped in Revelation 5. You see the elders and the living creatures fall down and worship him, and they worship him as the slain lamb. You are worthy because with your blood... You purchased for God, members of every tribe and tongue and nation. That's how the victories come. That's how redemptions come, is by the slain lamb. And then this worship circle keeps getting bigger. Starts with the elders, the people of God, and the, and the elite angels. And then it moves out, and you have thousands upon thousands of angels now. 10,000 upon 10,000. All singing worship to the lamb. All singing glory to the worthy is the lamb. And again, it's the lamb who was slain. 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then the worship circle goes even wider to its broadest possible extent. And we see every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, even on the sea. In other words, every single thing, the entirety of God's creation joining in the chorus to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory. What you're seeing by the time you get to verse 13 and 14 of Revelation 5 is a little peek at what's coming right at the end of the book. In fact, Revelation 4 and 5 is a short form of the whole book of Revelation. This ever-broadening circle of worship as God's kingdom expands, as his reign comes to earth, the chorus gets louder, the voices get louder, more people join in until finally the new Jerusalem arrives. It's, 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 the, it's the short story version of Revelation. That's why it's so important we grasp this before we move on, because it helps us interpret the images of judgment that are coming. It helps us interpret the images of wrath that are coming and all the disturbing stuff that's waiting for us after chapter 6. You can't get there until you've stood in the heavenly throne room and seen the one on the throne and the lamb slaughtered but standing. Because he keeps being the lamb, keeps being referred to as the lamb right through Revelation, never stops being, even in the new creation, he's going to be the slain lamb. Think about that. We just assume by that stage, surely that's just like a cicada shell he will have shed. No, it's not because it's who he is for eternity. It's his nature, self-giving love, lamb power. Now, here's the question. What does it mean for us to follow the lamb? Because the question this raises for me is, what, and if that's who Jesus is, if that is Jesus, what does it mean then for us to be Christ-like? And it may mean something quite different to what we've thought it meant. If Jesus is the slain lamb showing this lamb power, strength and weakness, what does it mean for us? Because we are not just transformed by this love. We are to be conformed to this love in our lives as we come to embody the image of the slain lamb. We're being transformed into the image of Christ day by day. This is our journey as followers of Jesus. So in view of the vision in Revelation 5, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to exercise lamb power in our own lives? Well, I thought it was wonderfully illustrated by a story that came out this week about Tevita Nalu, the New Zealand weightlifter. He was competing in the Oceania Champs in Samoa for a place at the Olympics. The New Zealand weightlifting team was, was getting spots for the Olympics. And weightlifting is an individual pursuit, but the deal was that the New Zealand team or any team had to score enough collective points in order to send their top-ranked person through to the Olympics. So whichever team won the championships, they would send one person, their top-ranked person, to the Olympics. So it's individual, but it's also a team pursuit. And Tevita was named in the New Zealand squad, but then on Monday night at training, he ripped a quad muscle. And basically that meant his Olympic chances were over. He was out. He had no shot at getting to London. But it was also true that because he was out, the team had no hope because they needed his points in order to win. Otherwise, they couldn't send the top-ranked guy, Richard Patterson, who had already won the men's title. They couldn't send him on to the Olympics. So that night, Tevita said he never stopped thinking about the team not about his pain, not about his injury, but about the team. And the next day he decided to make an attempt at lifting with nothing in it for him, with no possible shot at the Olympics himself, purely in order to give Richard Patterson a shot at getting to London and standing on the platform. He attempted a lift in excruciating pain and basically on one leg. 
he made this lift and got 123 kgs. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough points for New Zealand to win over the other nations. And in the process of trying that lift, he did further tearing to his muscle. And the doctor told him to stop. But he was so committed and determined, he wanted to try one last attempt. So he got back up on the platform, and in unbelievable pain, he made one final lift and managed 157 kgs. It still wasn't enough to give him a medal at the Oceania Champs, but it was enough for the New Zealand men's team to take the title and send Richard Patterson to the Olympics with the Olympic nomination. And after that, Tavita said that he just had nothing left to give. He, he had spent himself, but he'd spent himself on behalf of his teammate with no merit for him at all. And when Richard Patterson stands up to the platform in London at the Olympics, it will be because of the selfless sacrifice of Tavita Nalu. At one level, that's a nice story and it's a nice little human interest piece on Campbell Live. But as I did a little bit of poking around on Tavita Nalu, it seems like, at least from trawling over his Facebook page, it really does look like he's a committed Christian. And if that's true, and I don't know for sure, but if it is true, then that's a different story. And it has a profound significance beyond just a nice human interest piece because it means, and I don't know whether he would articulate it this way, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it means that if it's coming from a faith commitment to Jesus, then he is embodying lamb power in his life. He is embodying the slain lamb, slaughtered but standing. That he is giving himself away in the self-giving with nothing to gain, in fact, weakening himself in the process, being prepared to be weakened and, and to sustain further injury for the sake of another, for the sake of his teammate, this utterly selfless act of love coming out of a faith commitment to Jesus. I think it's the perfect expression of what lamb power looks like in the life of a Christian. Now, we're not all called to lift 157 kgs. I can barely lift 15 with my son Joshua. But it, 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 it's, it's, it's thinking through what does this mean in the ordinariness of life? What does it mean not just to be transformed by Jesus, but to be conformed to the image of, of the lamb and to express the slain lamb in our lives? Because this is what it is to follow the lamb wherever he goes. And maybe it's something as, as simple and seemingly trivial as when you are sitting there waiting for this car park and there's another car that comes along after you, maybe it means waving them in. Even though you got there first and even though you're entitled to take the park, maybe it means that you park another couple of rows away and you're prepared to make the walk even in the rain. You're prepared in some small way, you're prepared to be slain, to be weakened, to give life, to give blessing to someone else. Maybe it means that that argument that you're having with your spouse, even though you've got all the evidence on your side, even though you've got all the facts on your side, and clearly, you know, it should be this way, maybe it means that for the sake of the relationship that you get in their shoes and see it from their perspective and say, this is meaningful to you, and let's go, let's go your way. Let's call it as you see it. There's a dying that happens in that. There's a willingness to be slain. There's a willingness to give up and there's a willingness to lay down and it's so that someone else might have life and someone else might have blessing. Maybe it means at work that you share with someone else the fact that you're a follower of Jesus. That tomorrow when someone asks you what you did over the weekend, the first thing you say is not that you watched the rugby on Saturday night, but that you were here on Sunday morning and you're prepared for the glazed look that follows that. 
and the blank stare and the awkward silence and the conversation change. You know how it happens. And in a sense, in that moment, you are being prepared to be slain. You're experiencing weakness. You're experiencing the suffering of Jesus in some way, some small way. In order to sow a seed, and and however they may react in the moment, in order to sow a seed and be a blessing and give life and to be a witness for Christ in your workplace. And you know, just this week, funnily enough, with this message in mind, I've just heard various stories, several stories, I think four or five different stories of people and families within our church, within our community, demonstrating lamb power to other individuals and families within our church. And I won't give you the details because they don't, you know, there's confidentiality. They don't want you to know what they're doing because this is part of them remaining humble. But people making serious financial sacrifices for other people to help them and to bless them. People offering selfless hospitality to other people. People offering real practical help to other families in this church and outside of this church as they see the need arise. People moving towards other people with love and with grace and with selflessness. People taking annual leave in order to invest themselves in the work of the church for a day. This kind of willingness to give for the other. This willingness to experience something of being slain in order to give blessing and in order to give life. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Please don't think that I'm just talking about morals and behaviors and being a well-behaved Christian. That's a shallow way of thinking about it. This is about the power of the Lamb. This is about first experiencing the life that Jesus gives us, experiencing his death and his resurrection in our life and being completely transformed by it. And out of that, coming to embody the character and the way of the Lamb in the ordinariness of our life. Not to be moralistic, but to be followers of the Lamb and to express something of the dying and the rising of Jesus in our lives. It always takes someone to die in order for someone else to rise. There's always a dying that takes place to give life to another. We are spent. We are given up. So we can say with Tavita, I had nothing left to give, but it's blessed somebody and it's breathed life and it's lifted someone else up. This is happening among us. This is already happening. We are becoming a community of lamb power. And may it continue to be so as we're transformed by the lamb and as we come to embody the lamb in our lives, demonstrating selfless, self-giving love, prepared to be weakened and prepared to be slain for the sake of others out of gratitude and worship to the lamb who was slain for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that here at the heart of this extraordinary book of revelation we see an amazing picture of who you are and and jesus we struggle to hold together all of these images because there seems to be such a tension between them the lion and the lamb and the king and yet the one who was slain jesus you are all of those things and we thank you that you've been all of those things for us to give us blessing and to give us life I pray, Jesus, that you would make us a community that reflects your image in our individual lives, in our families, and in our church. That we would instinctively, as worshippers of you, be prepared to give ourselves up, to be inconvenienced, to be hassled, to be put out, to be weakened in some way for the sake of one another and ultimately for the sake of you. We thank you that this is your calling on us. And we thank you that it is because you have demonstrated this supremely 
by walking that road to Calvary and being hung upon a cross, dying, becoming slain in order to give us life. And so Jesus, as we come to the table this morning, as we take this juice that speaks to us of your blood poured out for us and this wafer that speaks of your body broken for us, we just center ourselves again around your power and your strength and your might that were displayed for us in unbelievable weakness and unbelievable powerlessness for our sakes. We didn't deserve it and we cannot earn it, but we nourish ourselves upon your grace once again. And in doing so, Jesus, we renew our commitment to be people of the Lamb, to follow you wherever you go and exhibit this Lamb power in our lives, in everyday ways, in ordinary conversations towards one another and towards those outside of our church community. We thank you. We worship you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.